Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. So maybe you can help me with something. I because it's been it's been concerning me for some time. Why exactly are there so many Swedish futurists out there? Like what is it about Sweden, about the climate or the water or the architecture or IKEA? There, oh, there must be know. something. Well, there, the Swede in me is now becoming extremely flattered on behalf of my nation. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't tell you one particular reason, but but maybe a couple. We have a pretty good school system. We have universities that are paid for through taxes, so a lot of people have access to that. We've had excellent internet coverage and broadband opportunities and business opportunities since mid-90s. A few things have been in place for Sweden to be the home of Spotify, for Sweden to be the home of Pirate Bay, right. for Sweden to be the home of, of several interesting new inventions. Maybe that is somehow connected. So, so you're saying it's high taxes, which give people the ability to spend more time in their youth daydreaming, leads to more creativity. Maybe, maybe so. <laughs> or at least, or at least we get a good chance to get good, solid education. And now I'm paying. You know, it depends on how you count. I'm probably paying forty to fifty percent of all of my income in taxes, one way or the other. And I'm, you know what? I'm completely happy. I'm having a cup of coffee in London uh, with uh, Andreas Ekstrom, uh, who is an author, uh, a journalist, and now, of course, a prominent keynote speaker. You've probably seen his wonderful TED talk uh, on uh, on Google. Uh, it's wonderful to meet you. Thank you. You too. We were introduced by another Swedish futurist, right. <laughs> Magnus, Magnus Lindqvist, who's also been on this uh, show speaking about his favorite pop bands. Right, right. <laughs> Magnus is, a, is an absolutely fantastic guy, and also. You know, as we're going down the Swedish track, kind of groundbreaking for Swedish speakers internationally, just just at a level that we, the rest of us, can can really look <laughs> up to and admire. He's he's absolutely fabulous, just with both his his skill and curiosity and, and energy. So great guy. I, I, I was really keen to catch up because uh, one of the areas you spend a lot of time looking at is something that all interests also interests me greatly, which is this whole emerging area of uh, algorithmic ethics. Absolutely, and 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 really being able to have greater transparency in the systems that we've now put into control of almost every aspect of our our daily lives. Right. No, I mean what we're really trying to do right now is to see is it possible to make automatic the sum of human judgment. I mean the the difficult decisions that on a daily basis are made by editors in newsrooms or or. or or publicists who are going to publish books, or, or by, by just, just us dealing with the people that we meet. Should I do this? Should I do that? How are you sensitive to a situation? Can we now teach machines to do that for us? That's really the full-scale test that's going on. And you know, there are reasons to be optimistic about some of it, but I'm also absolutely sure that there are some issues that, that just are not meant to be solved by algorithms, and that's okay. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll get into the problems, but it's probably worth talking about why this is happening, because it's not just a case of machines taking over humans. I mean, we need scale in this complex world we're in now. Uh, actually, if human beings were in charge of every single decision, there would be more planes falling out of the sky, there'd be more accidents, there'd be more discriminatory no doubt. behavior. So there's yeah. cert- there is a logic in automation. Absolutely, there is. And I also think that we, we have to understand that we're still early into this. I mean, we look. Sometimes we look at new technologies, and then and then we quickly discard them. I mean, my favorite example: When is the last time you saw somebody walk around with a pair of Google glasses? 
Of course, right. nobody does that anymore. Was it because the technology was bad? Absolutely not. But socially, people didn't want to walk around look like Terminator. You know, we weren't, <laughs> we weren't socially there yet. But don't discard the technology. Just say, okay, that was the first attempt of using this technology. Well, in this one one of the earliest attempts of x-rays was, you know, helping people fit their shoes. I know. Just, you know <laughs> we, which is sort of, which is nuts to think about now. It but. is. And also the phone, the phone for crying out loud. When, when that was made, they thought it was going to be, people were going to be sitting out in rural, rural America, listening to theater plays. You know, just all, everybody just listening in like in a big group conference call, listening to, to, to speeches or poetry whatever, they didn't understand the first inventors of the phone that they had created a groundbreaking tool for one-on-one -on -one communication. But mm. the technology was great. The first ideas of implication were not. In many ways, the, the, the way I read it, and, and, and you know, judging by some of your work, I think you have a similar view that the big problem is not that we're putting algorithms in charge of decisions. The problem is there's a lack of transparency or a belief on our part that somehow these are objective. Right, right. And that's, that's such a I mean, of course, there's an objective. This is something I discuss in, in my TED talk that you can usually find. I mean, is there such a thing as an objective search result? Well, sure, if you're asking what the capital of France is, no problem at all. But there's, it's so easy to come up with examples where you see that this is going to be the effect of human judgment. Who are you going to help out to clean out an unfavorable search result, for example? Well, interestingly, if you'd ask the question, where is Paris, it's a more of an ambiguous answer. Because it could be Paris, France, or Paris, Texas. It could be Paris, Texas, <laughs> but we're pretty soon down to where we can figure out. Maybe perhaps from from context or other other requests where, where I'm going at. But but true that, true that. Uh, what you know, the, the, one of the interesting things that you gave that talk in 2015, and uh, some of the examples you cited was you know how Michelle Obama's image was weaponized by people who were trying mm -hmm. to uh, essentially in a sense, cyberbully her, uh, and another uh, terrorist, you know, who was trying to present his image online. Do you feel like in the last three or four years, we've got to the point where even the ability of humans to manipulate algorithms has become more difficult? I mean, when you look at the last US election, the scale of intervention is itself almost algorithmic now. It is, and it has to be just because I mean, that's the, that's the groundwork of it. It's based on um, this old now, old and, and somewhat almost laughed at term, big data. But, but truly, we're talking about big data sets here. However, you can never really do anything with lots of data. You, have, you still have to analyze it. I mean, you, could, you have a huge amounts of data, and it's always been easy to gather data. It's just been really hard to, to understand and analyze it right. Yeah. So if you look at that anywhere from getting you know, the right true information about vaccines out, or if, you, if you're Russia and want to try to manipulate an election, it's the same challenge. You just have to battle extreme amounts of information. Uh, the algorithm is going to be measured, and of course, you're going to need some scale, some muscle. Uh, you can't just have. You can't just. You can't just get people to rename JPEG files anymore. You can't. You can't. Not not at, not a scale. Uh, however, we still see that problem in, in small areas where it's not maybe a huge issue. You know, if you go to TripAdvisor or Yelp or one of those sites, well, not Yelp so much, but maybe TripAdvisor is the best example. Uh, and you see um, a review of a hotel or a review of a restaurant. And, and sometimes you, you scroll down and you go, there's just no way that this many people have had this bad of an experience that they write with this much passion about this place. Oh, somebody hates the guy who's running the place or somebody's a competitor to the guy running the place. So there instead, the, the problem is that there's not enough data. There, it's, it's actually possible to trash somebody else's business just one-on-one -on -one if you're competing. This, this example you give is why I think some of these attempts to counter fake news by building an authorized version of facts is itself problematic. I mean, yeah. it's like saying that the solution to Wikipedia is Encyclopedia Britannica. 
Right. Uh, We can't go back to that because we discovered that that wasn't scalable. And also, it may not actually be objective either. No, and also... It's a different kind of bias. Not not correct uh, all the time and certainly a lot more difficult to change. Right. So it's also got ups and downsides. But I'm thinking if I was a lobbyist lobbying for something really unusual. Okay, there's actually one thing that I feel that I'm very unusual that we should mention in the beginning. I think that the world generally should pay more taxes. That's an unusual... Mm -hmm point of view, right? But I'm Swedish. Although you did signpost that at the beginning of this discussion. True, true. But let's just say, take that as an example. So if I want the world to have global tax reform where all corporations pay you know, 10 or 12% tax on their profits rather than you at the Cayman Islands you pay nothing and in Sweden you pay 22% and then people uh, move money across borders and, and all of a sudden there's not money enough to have good healthcare and, and public transportation and a defense system and whatever you need. So that's something that I, that I would argue. Now that's an unusual idea. That's unusual for being a global citizen. I want to pay more taxes. That's unusual. How do I want to change the perspective on this in the world? What would be the best way for me to do that? I think that that's such a long-term big thought for, for most people in the world who just want to pay as little taxes as they can, that I don't think that any attempt of fake news of saying, oh, this look how great it is when you pay taxes. Look all of the great stuff you're getting. That's not the way to do it. You have to look long-term. You have to say, in 25 years or in 50 years, I'm slowly going to be pushing the opinion in that direction. I'm going to start a magazine that are discussing these issues. I'm going to look to the, to the best counter-arguments and discuss those. Who are the libertarians who say that all tax is theft? Okay, let's talk. Let's talk. Let's see what we can... Maybe you have a point. Maybe I should change my mind partly and just accept the slowness of changing the world, which we are really bad at right now. Is this a benevolent uh, group of concerned citizens pushing this agenda or is it an evil group of Illuminati? Because right. it, it does go to the tactics that will be used. Because if, it if it's the evil group, they, they wouldn't actually go through the considered debate. They would mm-hmm. just find maybe some high-level proponents of the opposite view and bring them down with a scandal in the Daily Mail. Sure. Uh, I wouldn't want to give advice to those guys, and I'm not even sure what I, w- what I would do. But I think what's long-term mostly sustainable is definitely the, the more conservative way to do it. And, and that is to just slowly change the attitudes in society. If you want to look at what are the attitudes towards uh, gay marriage in the world, the results that we see are because of a long battle for people who don't identify themselves as, as heterosexual in the traditional way. A long battle over decades and decades and decades to be allowed to be whoever the heck they are and, and have the, the Actually, same civil you're, rights. Actually, you're, you're right. That is an amazing example of, of, a, of a, a long arc of... It is a long arc, change. but it, and it's actually picking up the pace. And it's actually happening faster. But climate change is the opposite example. It feels like we're going backwards. It is, but I'm thinking, or hoping, I should say hoping. I'm hoping we're getting to a turning point where we're seeing, you know what, though? This is just something that we need to fix first. Maybe it's not the biggest problem of the planet, or, or maybe it is. But I'll, I'll borrow this thought from, from uh, Lawrence Lessig, you know, the, the, the wonderful American uh, academic who's actually going to come out with a, with a book pretty soon called America Compromised. It's going to be out in October. He always, when he talks about corruption in politics, he says, my question is not the most important question, but it's the first question. It's the one we have to get to first before we can get to the whatever is the biggest question. Because if we don't have this in place, we will never have the organization or the muscle or, or the unity to be able to deal with, you know, climate change or, or yeah. what other things. And I love that idea. I love the idea of identifying... Wait, wait, what's, what's, what's the question? So, so well, so what's the... What's the, the for him, it's, it's corruption. For him, it's I got to change or, or bring down corruption in politics so we have fair elections because if we don't have a political system that works, then we can get to all, all the other big questions. Um, and for me, from my perspective, I would say that in my first question digitally 
Perhaps it's net neutrality. Perhaps I would say that there are other bigger issues that we need to discuss digitally. But if we don't have net neutrality in place, we're not going to be able to organize ourselves the way we want. We're not going to be able to access uh, freely all the information we want. It's going to be impossible to, to create a startup and bring down a giant. And it's just going to be politically impossible to get out there with fair and square information. So, so maybe, maybe that's the digital equivalent. That's interesting. I was wondering, you know, for me, it, maybe it's a bit different. Maybe it's transparency. Like I, you know, back to our earlier discussion about whether you can counter fake news with real news. Mm -hmm. uh, I absolutely don't believe that. But if there was a way to show the provenance of where ideas came from, or at least who was behind them. Mm -hmm. uh, if you could do a trace route, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. on, on the idea itself. We'll make it voluntary. The... Make it like a... Well, yeah, it could be something that if you don't, you would be suspicious. Right, right. Did you say, here's a code of ethics that we're all signing. There's plenty of that in different industries. Just look at in Sweden now, there's the, 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 the influencer network. There's a club of people who work on Instagram and other places with marketing. And they call them the, the Influencers Club of Sweden or whatever their name is. Uh, and they have... Done incredible. These are like you know. These are these are eighteen-year-old girls showing off makeup in, on YouTube with a gazillion more views than you and I. Can oh, and this do, is where it right? says like a paid promotion. By and they say and they just say here's a code of ethics that we've subscribed to. And if you go to the website, it's thorough. It's thought through. It's it's the, well, some of the best ethics in marketing I've seen. And it's <laughs> and it's young people on Instagram. You know, I have said that the, the teenage Swedish bloggers were ahead of the game long before anybody else. <laughs> maybe so. Yeah, maybe even so. before Instagram. Uh, yeah, maybe so. Uh, they, they, uh, but but yeah. I. I just love the fact that, that there are there are ways to just subscribe to you can see that in environmental issues you know the company will say let's get certified that we're uh, under the the UN code so so we're an environmentally friendly company you don't have to do it but if you do it it's good for your brand it's good for your company it's good for the climate and it's mm -hmm. something that we feel that we want to do so let's do it and you don't have to but if you do it will make a difference. Aside from algorithmic ethics, there's, there's another thing that, that I know you spend a lot of time thinking about, which is also of interest to me, which is sort of the, the underlying infrastructure you know, behind the, the digital world, whether it's identity, payments. Uh, there's lots of people who are seeking to own that now. It or, is. Uh, although it doesn't, it's not always presented in a coherent way to consumers, although that seems to be the secret struggle that's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, have you, where, where, where do you think that's going to, how do you think that's going to play out? Well, there's there's several issues really um, baked into one, but we're we're becoming really dependent on a few things to be able to govern nations efficiently and just govern our private lives efficiently. We have to have payment solutions that work really well. We have to have EID solutions that work really well. We have to have connective tissue between people for everyday communication that works really well. And then some of this is really official, and some of it is just on a personal level. But, but in the keynote that I'm currently working a lot with, I, I, I call it seven ways to own the world. And all those seven issues kind of touch upon that. They kind of touch upon how do we, how do we organize all these big things? How do we organize an electronic ID solution for almost 8 billion people? And we need to have that in place in the year 2030. I mean, today we're still, and people forget it. There's 3 billion people on the planet who do, have do yet to that, have internet access. Do you access. think that would be a good idea though, really? I'm not sure that it would be a good idea, but I do know that we're going to need good digital ID to, to, I mean, that's the way society is going to be run. I'm not saying it should be one solution, but I'm saying that every government uh, needs to have one. There are some examples in the world now of digital IDs coming up mm -hmm. in India, in China, mm -hmm. Estonia. Uh, some of them, let's say, feel more 
safe than others. Of course, <laughs> to be polite. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, in that, I, I'm not sure I like the idea of Mark Zuckerberg or a government uh, having having control of a register of, of all of my activities and what I look at. No, absolutely not. It's as Orwellian. And it, it, it does, but that can be done in different ways. I mean, if it's you look distributed, at distributed, you know. Yeah, if you look at it in Sweden, we have, which is unfortunate, um, some of our biggest banks have built a bank ID solution. So they just did it so that you and I could go online and do our bank stuff online, plain and simple. But what they did was that then they went to Sweden, the nation of Sweden, and said, do you guys want to tag along? Do you want to use this login, the secure login, to get to your tax authorities, to get you to your pharmacist with all your right. with all the prescriptions and, and all that? So now you, everybody's using the bank ID for all of their dealings with all of public Sweden too. So without a debate, we privatized the issuing of ID and identity to some banks. Uh-huh. And this is in Sweden. And why yeah. did we do it? I'll tell you why. Because comfortable beats scared. <laughs> comfortable beats scared seven days in the week. And convenience beats freedom. Absolutely. So we just said, oh, Sweden said, okay, that's great. You already have that in place. Let's do it. And of course, no Swedish politician is now going to say, okay, that bank ID thing, that works really well. It's never down. It's really easy to use and it costs us almost nothing to use it. But still, it's from a principle standpoint wrong. We're not going to be using it. We're going to build our own version. It's going to be worse, technically, and it's going to be a hassle to, to, to change it. But I'm still saying we should do it. And why should we do it? Because we are the first internet generation. We are writing the constitution. What we do now is going to be rules that are going to be looked at for 100 years or 200 yeah. years. We, from a principle standpoint, we need to make some uncomfortable stuff. You're right. I mean, by default, even our social IDs are now being used by governments. Like right. to get a visa now in the United States, it used to be voluntary right. that you put your social media handles. Right. But it's no longer voluntary. Oh, they changed that now. Yeah. Yeah. So last time I, I, in the spring, it was still voluntary, but I'm, I was just waiting for them to change it. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, something similar is happening in insurance. So it, it was initially, uh, if you want to get a life insurance quote for someone like, you know, John Hancock. Uh, you could join their vitality program, which tracked all your health and, and quantitative you get a lower measures. Rate, yeah. and, and it was just it was not even that. It was just like this is a fun thing. Mm-hmm. Now they're not selling you a life insurance policy unless you're part of that program. Now you don't have to give your uh, your data yet, but as like we see with everything else, sooner or later, is sure. if you don't give your data. That's fine, but your premium will be five times. So it's sure. like saying... So with car insurance, it's going to be the same way. You drive responsibly, you have a lower, lower right. rate. Yeah. So there's this, there's this really tricky paradox, I think, for anyone who's kind of a digital ethicist, which is how do you reconcile transparency and accountability with freedom? Very hard. But I mean, if you look at the ID solutions, I mean, they don't. you can have an EID solution that actually doesn't allow... The, the EID solution in itself to even see what websites you're visiting. It's just, just like a fingerprint where it says, is this, uh, is this uh, can we open the gate based on your fingerprint? Yes, and then no further questions, no further data are stored. I mean, that's possible to, to right. just program. And that's the way it's done with the bank ID. Uh, however, you know, if you're China, you're not gonna build it like that. <laughs> well, they aren't, it's private sector once again, but mm-hmm. pri- private public. Of course. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about um, ethics and, uh, I guess, identity uh, and infrastructure. The third piece, which I know that you look at, which I find really interesting, is around communications. Mm-hmm. Like, who owns our conversations? Right. Uh, 
How, how is conversation and discussion different in a digital age? Well, so this is, this is key for me for two reasons. I'm, I'm the son of two teachers, and I'm also a journalist, a newspaper reporter. What did, you, what did, what did your parents teach? Uh, my mom is now retired, is Swedish and special ed, and my dad was math and, math and physics, and they were all both teaching from uh, mostly seventh to ninth grade. Right. Uh, and my sister is, is a researcher, highly qualified such, at the University of Gothenburg. So we're all, I mean, there's teachers everywhere. My daughter was 13. Since she was six, she said she's going to be a teacher. She just started a new school. She comes home. She doesn't talk about her classmates. She talks about the teachers, evaluates them. because She, oh. she wants to learn. She wants to be a teacher. So it's very, it's deep in us somehow. Um, and I'm thinking that that in combination, the teaching DNA in me, combined with the reporter DNA in me, makes me believe a lot in the meeting of people. So we're meeting and we're discussing something. It doesn't have to be a physical meeting. We can just have an open public debate on the op-ed page or, or in a chat forum or however we want to do that. Historically, you know, and we're in London, there's been Speaker's Corner. Um, there's, been the, the, there's, been the, <laughs> there's been the debate section of the paper. There's been debate. You clearly haven't been to Speaker's Corner lately. No, I haven't been there in a while. Maybe I, I, th- I think they're largely there. members of your Swedish Democratic Party. Is that right? <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I should, I should definitely stop by. Um, but but the, I just believe that that's such an, a crucial part of our infrastructure, and that, that's for the public part of the conversation. Now, since so much of that public uh, conversation always takes, takes room in really in one serious place, which is Facebook. I mean, some on Twitter, but it's gotten to the point where I've given up anything, but just I use it as an intake. I don't participate anymore because just, it just got too depressing. But, but So it's on Facebook. And then you add on a whole private layer of all personal discussions where you where you say, oh, I signed up for an organ donation, or I'm in and out of a relationship, or I bought a house, or I, or I had another kid, or whatever it is. If you add all this into one single place, then you have to ask yourself the question, if somebody wants to know a whole lot about you, where are they going to look? And, and of course, of course, these discussions are always going to need a space to take place. But, but if we should make another reference, Clay Shirky. Uh, who I'm sure you're well acquainted with. Um, Clay wrote this, this groundbreaking book back in 2008 called Here Comes Everybody. And he, he's got this wonderful one-liner where he says, what's the point of the digital revolution? Like, what's, what's the thing? And he says, getting organized just got easier. And I was like, okay, that sounds smart, but you have to explain it to me. What do you mean? Well, getting organized just got easier because any big digital game changer always does that. I mean, Facebook gets everybody together in one place and getting organized just get easier. That's what Uber does. We get cars and we get drivers and we get passengers and Uber's getting organized just get easier for transportation. And you can get so many examples down. So that's why that fabric of who owns the conversation and the place where you need to be is going to be so incredibly important. It is already. The, 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 The thing, though, that seems to have happened in the last particularly five years is that conversations are fragmenting around context Mm -hmm. so you know if if you went back to the beginning of the internet it kind of was like well whoever owns icq owns Mm -hmm. internet conversation then Mm -hmm. it became whoever owns skype or whoever owns hotmail Mm -hmm. and and we kept looking for because we 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 told ourselves that this was a you know uh, we we looked at it like phones and fax machines we Mm -hmm. said you know whoever's got critical mass on this no one will ever take over Mm -hmm. and then we started noticing bizarre stuff that people were having side conversations in Instagram or Mm in on a on on a work application Mm -hmm. and it became more important about capturing the context around the the conversation Mm -hmm. rather than having the conversation infrastructure right and and I just from a consumer standpoint I'm actually surprised that that we are where we are because I don't know of a single person who's happy with having eight different inboxes 
But, but you do, because you have Instagram and you have Facebook and you get your work email and you get your Slack channel and you got, and that's created mayhem in my newsroom. Yeah. You know, I, I prefer for all the of The kids this, don't see it that way. They like, don't. This it bothers true. us, but for kids it's, You're right. it's... You're right, and it's just different because yeah, well it's important, you know, it's a text message. If it's just hanging out, then it's snap. And, and that, so they, have, they differentiate, but I'm an old guy, I'm 42. I'm almost gonna be 43. Um, you know, that means that I would prefer to have APIs that are open enough for all of these services to just merge into one single mailbox for me. And when I reply, it's gonna look like it's coming from the application to where it was sent. But for me, it's all just gonna be one inbox. I only have to be in one interface of my, of my choice. But of course, nobody's providing that because nobody wants to give up those surroundings that you were talking about, the context of where it happened, because that's where the money is. Yeah. So, so from a consumer standpoint, this sucks. This is so bad. <laughs> but we we almost forgot to think that you know what? we could ask this. We could ask for the service. We could say we're consumers. We really well, want this to be better done. You know, the the bigger issue here, which actually relates to a book that you've got coming out, I know, in Swedish, but hopefully soon in English. Yes, um, is why we're having these conversations. Uh, why people are such social animals, what, mm -hmm. what drives our obsessiveness to divulge details of what we had for breakfast. Exactly. You know? and, and, and your new book is called On Finding. It right? is. Which, which, which in itself sounds like very philosophical. It is, and it's, 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 it's not, and it's, me. And it's not just about Google, is it? No, it's not, it's not so much about tech this time. It's definitely a new step, step for me as a writer. It's a short book of six chapters where three are discussing the digital issues of the future, much like we are in this conversation. It's very Italo Calvino of you. Uh, well, sort of, <laughs> sort of. Uh, you know, on a winter's day, a traveler, that, yeah. that kind of stuff. You know, well, it's, it's not quite that well connected. But um, then three chapters, number two, four, and six in the book are, are branching off into the word and playing with the word, finding. What is finding for mankind? What, what is this? What is this desire that we have to add knowledge to knowledge, to add skill to skill, to find food, shelter, love, and a context to be in? I talk about um, maps. I talk about art. I, I, I interview authors and musicians in finding original art. And in the final, uh, very personal chapter, I'm also talking about something that's going to um, save my life um, in a year or two. Uh, it's called On Finding a New Liver, because weirdly enough, I have an unusual liver condition, and I'm going to need to get that part replaced. Hmm. Not particularly worried. This is something that they do on you know on boring Tuesdays in, in any any day of the week, right? I mean, it's just it's just regular work for them, but it's going to be a big thing for me. But I just realized that that this all is actually connected. This actually comes together in in what I thought and be an interesting way. And I was the book was just out in Swedish. It was it was really well received and and. Um, we are uh, currently working, I'm working with a translator to get a really good English what version. What is the ready. word uh, to find in Swedish? So, at hitta, to find really literally. Does it mean something slightly different in Swedish than it does in English? Uh, hitta, find. Uh, well, it's maybe, it's more, um, it also has a feeling of, of randomness to it, perhaps. Uh, that, like like that, a lucky dip. Kind of, like you walk out in the, in the forest and you, you, you all of a sudden you find uh, chanterelles in the woods that you can pick and, and, and bring home, right? And it's, it's like you find a treasure. It's, there's a little more there's romantic. An element of, there's an element of serendipity in it. A little bit, perhaps, but this is this is vague. I mean, this is really uh, this is really somebody would maybe disagree with me even saying that. But I feel that I feel that. So on finding is better than to find for a title. Yeah. And right now we're we're talking with some publishers and we'll see if we can if we can get it out early next year. And if not, I've decided to just self-publish because I really I'm proud well, of the book and where, I'm going to be out. Where, where do you think this comes from? Is it is it from the, the sort of the nomadic part of our you know when we were on the savannah and we were as nomadic tribes looking for our next meal I believe, and shelter? I believe it's one of the basic things that makes us human. That that striving, that that need for progress, that need to learn. 
uh, and, and to just move forward to cultivate ourselves. Or even um, just to feed the neural networks in our brains. Absolutely. Right? There's just so much un- unreleased and unused power, so much yet to discover. And I mean, look around. Everybody is putting one foot in front of the other and they're doing it for a reason. It's got to be something in the core of us. Uh, in a way, you could, you could have also have called your book on connecting them. I very much could. I very much could. I didn't, didn't think of that, but you're right. I very much could because it's... Because we're not so much finding things, we're, we're, we're joining things to something We are. Else. There's so much... You're standing on the shoulders of, of giants, of course, is the, the, the old pictures for that. But it's true. Very, very few things are now being invented or, or found for the first time. It's really about adding technologies to, to each other or adding ideas to old ideas or, or challenging them. Yeah. It, it's a, there was always that sense of that, that kind of the... Uh, the dismay of coming to the end of the age of exploration that there, were, there was nothing new to find and, mm-hmm. and of course what we've discovered is that there's infinite worlds to find when you bring things together mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's why it's you know possibly the, it couldn't be more fun than to be alive in 2018 i mean what what a great time this is for for, for mankind never before has so many people done so well as of now and we tend to forget that we think about the challenges that lay ahead and they're vast i'm not saying that they're not but we are in a really good place to move forward and make some really good decisions. But it's imperative that everybody who's living now gets the digital stuff right because we're laying a foundation for the future. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds. Thank you.